0: You're listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media and supported by the Western Weekender. For three decades, Penrith and the Blue Mountains have turned to the Western Weekender. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. Here is your host, Jonathan
1: robinson Lees.
0: Thank you for joining us for the latest episode of the Passion and Perspective podcast. Today, we are chatting with Jason Dundas, director from Los Angeles. As a global media icon, Jason has hosted some of the world's biggest productions, both locally and abroad. While still spending time in front of the camera, Jason is also channeling his creative energy into his production company, Dundas Media. Jason shares his unique and pioneering story on today's episode of the Passion and Perspective podcast. Jason, welcome to the Passion and Perspective podcast.
1: Oh, thanks for having me on. It's good to be here and uh, yeah, good to meet you.
0: Jason, you've spent nearly two decades on the global media scene with some of the biggest stars on the biggest shows and with some of the most influential people. And it's truly a journey from your bedroom to Hollywood. It's such a subjective industry. How do you go about measuring your success in your work?
1: You know, it's... uh... It's a a, a pretty loaded, high mileage question. I'll start by sort of taking you back on a small journey. So to enter the world of media and television and stuff like that, I won a contest. And the contest wasn't what's called a meritocracy. It wasn't the guy with the best skills. It was the person who a couple of people thought would be cool and do the job. And I came from zero experience, grew up in South Penrith off Smith Street, was at the University of Western Sydney. And I made an audition tape uh, and sent it into MTV pretty much to get their attention as a graphic designer, which is what I was studying. I didn't really have a passion to sort of be in front of the camera. And it just turned out that the way I edited and cut it and told that story, having never done it before, caught the eye of someone and, and they gave me this job. So... From day one, I was like, holy crap, you can kind of market yourself to get to where you want to be versus having gone to university and following that that sort of corporate ladder, which I guess is what I was, you know, growing up in Penrith, I'm, I, I'm exposed to kind of that way of thinking and that sort of career trajectory versus now living in Los Angeles. It's very like, if you can dream it, dude, you can make it. And if you believe it, then you got it. So from day one, it was... uh it was an interesting wake up call but then to answer your question specifically about the industry is the further along you go it gets to moments where you know you might be going head to head for a tv show and they give it to somebody else because of some some reason that to you you can't actually be better at what you do you can't you can't be better positioned but maybe that person has got I don't know, a couple thousand more Instagram followers, or maybe they just got some press in the media. So at that point in my, in my business being on camera gets really tricky because it becomes a personality contest. And the idea of fame is whatever is uh, whatever's popular and trending in that moment seems to like steal the job. So I'm sure we'll get to, you know, more specifics in how I got to this sort of position or whatever, but there was a time about five years ago where I sort of said, well, gosh if i'm just going to be this guy in front of the camera i'm kind of leaving i'm leaving my uh future in the hands of a few people that are just going to select who they think has got it where if i can make my own stuff then i'm kind of the captain of my own ship and I'm steering my own destiny. And so about five years ago, I switched gears and thought, well, I'll be a host, but I'm also going to make my own stuff. And that's when I created my business, Dundas media, which produces content. And that's kind of for me when everything sort of changed and I sort of took control of my own sort of destiny.
0: And how hard was that Jason in those years where you are trying to balance fame, publicity, scrutiny, but then you also have that internal satisfaction. Like, as you say, someone You're leaving your fate up to someone else. Was that a challenge for you in those years?
1: Yeah. So like the fame, publicity and like being on TV, none of that stuff I really care about at all. And none of it ever like affected me ever. I just thought it was hilarious and funny and great and cool. Like all that stuff is cool. But being somebody that wants to host, so let's say I want to host Australian Idol. I can't can't be a really good host and think that that's enough to get me that job it's like a really tricky thing. It's almost like a catch 22 when you're, I guess what they call in America, they call it talent, right? So if you're a host or an actor, you kind of need the heat and the momentum to get you there. So you have to have done some other show to catch the eye of this person to do that show to catch the eye of that person. So it's this like never ending sort of riddle and puzzle of trying to piece it all together. And in Australia, my goal from day one, once I got on MTV, I was like, "Well, crap! I I now want to host the biggest shows I possibly can in this country." And to me, the X Factor on Channel Seven kind of reached that point, and that was in 2016. After being on Getaway for 10 years and hosting a bunch of stuff in the US, I got to host the X Factor on Channel Seven, and and that was like what I'd been dreaming of ever since I sort of started on MTV. I saw Ryan Seacrest host American Idol. I was like, "Holy crap! Like this looks so cool!" You know, you get to follow these follow these musicians living out their dreams you're the medium between them and the audience you get to narrate this emotional like ups and downs of their story you got a live studio audience theatrics it's like super cool but that show like wasn't rating and the network was starting to like lose faith in it I think at episode 10 it's maybe like 20 episodes in the run and so for me it was like pretty disheartening to have worked my whole life to get to this point and then that show is not really like working and I didn't have the ability to do anything other than go out and host it because I'm not in control. It's not my show. I'm not the producer. And to me at that point, this was about five years ago. I just thought, well, screw this. I'm going to, I'm going to make sure whatever I do next, I have the ability to pull the strings and if it's not working, I can either eject or I can tweak it or I can change it. So that's when I started the business. That was kind of the moment, which actually provided a lot of clarity actually
0: you talked about the ratings there and, and shows that are either doing really well or, or they are struggling. How do you go about separating your self-worth and identity from the output and the ratings?
1: I guess like, okay, as a TV host, cause it's like, uh, like I'm a producer and then I'm a host. Okay. So as a host, I hosted maybe five or six huge reality competition shows back to back. I think about four of them were in the U S and then two of them were in Australia. So about six in Australia, there was one called the big adventure and there was the X factor. Now these are shows that are like millions of millions of dollars worth of production. They're massive beasts. Every single show tanked (laughs) like every show back to back for four years failed. (laughs) I was like, what is actually going on? Like, I'm watching all these other people get on a show because as a host, all you want to do is get on a show like the bachelor and it sits there for 18 seasons and you make millions of bucks and it just continues to rock, you know, but for some reason, every bloody show I got on just like tanked and I felt like the crew were great. Formats were great. Like I felt good about what I did, but for some reason they just didn't connect with the audience. So I, it happens so often that I sort of started to not really worry about it too much and just assumed that it would
0: happen. Yeah.
1: So to answer your question directly, I didn't really give a crap in the end. That's fine.
0: The, the fun, the enjoyment and the energy is key for you to, to bring that out both through your work now, but also, you know, when you are behind the, uh, in front of the camera, sorry, how do you ensure that your personality shines through? Do you have certain preparations, certain triggers that, that kind of kick you into gear or, or is it just you naturally? Like as a
1: host, um, cause again, like I'm a producer and a host, but as a host and that's definitely wearing two hats, but as a host, I had no, I had no, um, I had no uh, drama training. I w- did no theater school, nothing. I just entered a contest because I thought MTV was cool. So I was just the dude that thought the channel was cool and thought music was cool. So without knowing it, I just spoke what I thought in that moment and didn't really worry about it. And then, you know, 20 years later, I kind of realized that in my perspective, the key to being a great host is to being the best version of yourself without any inhibition, but also having the ability to sort of, to not, because there's this sort of deer in headlights thing with people who are hosts where they kind of they so if i'm talking to you now like i'm stopping and i'm thinking and i'm scratching my head and i'm trying to gather my thoughts sometimes when people get in front of a camera they just turn into this sort of robotic version of themselves that just delivers the information and they lose all the nuance and subtext but in my opinion a great host is somebody who has the ability has the ability to just really be as authentic as possible and allow the highs and lows to affect them allow themselves to think on their feet and on their toes but understand that when you're on camera you have to deliver a certain level that is going to keep people interested so it's a, a delicate dance between being the most true version of yourself and then also having you know energy but to me like I have that energy as a human so I, I just like be myself and just stand there. And it, it bloody works great. I, mean, I landed on my feet so hard, <laughs> like, like it works pretty well.
0: Jason, you grew up in South Penrith, as you alluded yeah. to. What was your upbringing like?
1: Um, yeah, it was cool, man. Like I grew up just off Smith Street shops, like near Jammo Park. There, my buddies and I used to get under Pen River all the time and go to the BMX bike track. Uh, you know, around panthers, like really prolific wakeboarders and water skiers at the cable ski park, got the mountains, hang out, like catch lizards or whatever. That like, was so cool, and I really liked Jamison High, and you know, I still got a bunch of friends from out there. It was really good, and then um, maybe as a, when I got to about sixteen, I kind of, I kind of thought to myself. Um, I just looked at what people, the way they were thinking about their lives and the, the status quo is like, oh, you know, I'm going to study this university and then I'm going to go off and I'm going to do this job and that's going to net me like 150 grand when I'm 30 and I'm going to do this and then there and that. I just looked at that and I just, something inside of me just went, well, this just seems so whack that like we live on this massive planet and there's all these opportunities. Why are these people talking? at school about what degree they want to do and what they want to do as a career. I'm like, how do I even know? I want to kind of do everything. What the hell is none of this stuff made any sense to me. And the only thing that really was like a beacon of light for me was like Michael Jordan. At the time I used to collect Michael Jordan cards. And I used to look at this guy and go, he literally does whatever he wants. Like sure. He's doing big slam dunks and has all this athletic ability that I obviously don't have. And I'm not six, seven and whatever. But I look at the guy and I'm like, my gosh, like he didn't follow any formula. He's just like rocking it. And so from that moment, I looked at America as like a destination of, you know, global pop culture and influence and, you know, specifically entrepreneurship and a way of thinking. I was growing up in, in in Australia, you know, you got tall poppy syndrome and it's, you know, they, people sort of like, or society tries to like put you in a box or, You know, you can do this. And then once you've done that, you can do this. And I just thought, well, what if I wrote a hit song and wanted to be like a rapper or something like, so early on, I gravitated towards like American culture and American way of thinking. And so I kind of, in my mind at about 18, just sort of separated myself and actually used MTV as a bit of a guiding light to develop a way of thinking around like my life or what I wanted to do.
0: Within your network of family and friends, who had the biggest influence on your upbringing? I think uh, there's a bloke called, uh,
1: so me and my buddies in Penrith, would, we'd go out to the city or whatever when we turned 18. And then after I got a job on MTV, early on, I met um, a bloke at a fashion show called Tom Waterhouse, who's a, um, a bookmaker in Australia, a famous bookmaker. And um, he and I became best mates. And it's funny because we come from two opposite worlds. I like, grew up in a completely different world to me, you know? And um, he's just really funny because we just thought the same and we just looked at problems and opportunity the same. And I just never met anyone that looked at the world the same way. Like obviously he's in completely different career and he's in gambling and I'm in media and television, but there's just the way that we approach problems and solve problems. And like, I didn't drink any alcohol at all my entire life until I don't know, maybe my thirties or whatever. Obviously I had a drink, but I just didn't care. And I had, you know, I had this energy for like experiencing things and creating things and building things. And he and I like shared this similar sort of passion for that. So I guess he was like one of my biggest influences in that regard. And uh, still today, he's one of my best mates. I actually make a lot of his marketing material for his new business at the moment. And yeah, I thought he was, uh, he was pretty influential.
0: Your time at high school, you attended Jamison High. What was the role of education for you through your teenage years?
1: Yeah. I thought it was a bit of a disaster, you know, as a whole, I just thought like I was horrible at English. It's horrible at math. You know, computers were really cool, but I just just feel like I didn't really learn that much and art was good, but every time I tried to do what I wanted, I just bloody get in trouble and I'd always get in trouble for talking. And I just never really like I hit puberty really late. So I didn't really understand what I was supposed to do. And it just, the whole school system didn't really make any sense to me. I had a lot of great friends. I had a good time and, you know, went to a lot of parties and had good at sport and whatever. And all that was fine. And the teachers were really good and the school was fine, but I just didn't, it didn't really make sense to me. But then when I went to university, I went to university uh, Western Sydney and did a bachelor of design, visual communication. To me, that's when like education really made sense because I was in a class of like-minded people. And that's when I could really like learn and use you know, the way that other people see the same problem to actually develop a skill set and actually become better at what I do where, when I'm at school, I'm in this classroom of all these diverse people and I, my interests and passions aren't aligned with any of them. So it's just like the weirdest thing, but at, at university, it really sort of kicked in for me. And I was like, Oh my gosh, okay, this actually makes sense right now. And that's sort of where I, you know, ended up getting this, creating this MTV tape. They got me a job to be a host on MTV, but, and funnily enough, in my last year of university the lecturer gave me 49 and a half in one of the subjects and I said mate you just failed me like what are you doing by half a mark like I have to do this bloody subject again next year like you're an arsehole like just give it to me and he's like nah mate like you're putting all your attention on this stupid MTV thing like you think you're gonna have some career like what are you doing mate pull your head in blah 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 it's no way to live and then I end up basically it was the gateway to everything and (laughs) i'm like what's this guy doing so anyway i didn't graduate i maybe did two and a half years that was it do
0: you you take those kind of things personally as motivation if someone talks down to you or picks apart your work does that fire you up
1: yeah like early on growing up in penrith you have a chip on your shoulder for sure and that was definitely the fuel that was like well screw you i'm going to show you and little moments like that. And you know, maybe I was a little smaller because I hit puberty pretty late. So maybe I was like, oh, I'm going to outsmart you and outthink you. But now as you get a little older, I just know from having done it a million times over that I can just outwork other people. So I don't have to have it like a chip per se or a grudge or whatever. To me, it's as long as I'm level-headed and I've got a strategy and I stick to it and I'm ultra disciplined and persistent, then generally it, it pays off
0: looking back at your childhood and your upbringing and you talked about the exploration and the opportunities, the sport, the friends, the family, do you look back fondly on those years and and do you often reflect on those years?
1: Nah, not really, man. I mean, I, I, um, I guess I feel I'm a bit like a renegade. So I left, so I won this contest when I was 20, moved to Monaval on the Northern beaches at 21 And uh, lived over there hosting MTV for about three years. And then I got a job on getaway and pretty much for about eight years, I was around the world on the road, 200 days a year living out of a suitcase. And there was one point where I basically threw all my stuff out and only owned the possession of two suitcases to the point where if I bought a new t-shirt, I'd throw an old t-shirt out and just had a laptop and just rocked around the world and made travel TV and had friends in 50 countries and was on at that time, I think it was Blackberry BBM messenger. I was on any one day I'd be chatting with people in seven countries and wherever I was sleeping was my home. So I didn't really like, I didn't really need like reference to a base or like whatever. I just kind of cruised, you know, it didn't really matter.
0: You referenced the MTV competition well, what was the experience when you found out that you, you were actually successful?
1: Yeah. So I guess like to go back on something I mentioned earlier. So I had this thing in my mind where, and I remember this pivotal moment where a group of friends of mine and I were sitting there and they were saying, oh, where do you want to buy a house? And what do you want to do when you're older? I was like, well, actually I'm, uh, I'm 18 and I have no desire to buy a house and I have no idea what I'm going to do, but it's going to be pretty big. And they're like, well, I'm buying this house here in Penrith and I'm putting, getting this car. And I'm like, well, I I don't want to do that. It's the weirdest thing. So when I got the MTV job, it was almost, it was the most surreal moment of my life, but it almost like made sense. I was like, oh shit. Okay. That was actually in the back of my mind that something else was going to happen. It just kind of like reinforced this inkling of thought that I had in the back of my mind that oh crap okay I get it that's why I was thinking like that because there are these opportunities that aren't obvious and aren't you know a clear path you actually have to create it
0: that first show when you finished it your first time in front of the mm. camera did you yeah. think it was a success did you say walk away saying you know that was great
1: no it's actually I was actually really bad Like I'd never been on camera before never done drama school and and um You know, growing up in Penrith as a young kid, never having to have done any public speaking or, you know, I wasn't highly educated. Like I was passionate about stuff, but so I I had a pretty limited vocabulary. I wasn't very articulate. I didn't really understand nuance. I didn't know how to hit beats in sentences. Obviously, I didn't know how to read an auto cue. I don't know how to structure an interview to make it conversational and flow. Like I'm not that quick-witted. Like there was so many flaws and the show was so bad. I mean, I had good energy or whatever, and I had had potential, but it was so bad. And after five weeks, MTV actually said, look, mate, it's not going to work. Like, you're pretty bad. (laughs) I was like, yeah, I get it. And one guy goes, nah, we should give him a chance. Send him to elocution lessons, like, and just let him learn how to speak properly. (laughs) And we'll give him a month or whatever. We've invested all this in him. I'm like, oh, okay. So I ended up going into Nicole Kidman's vocal coach and she taught me how to, you know, open my mouth and enunciate words and not, you know, finish sentences and end on downward and upward inflections and sort of just like, you know, create a bit of light and shade in the conversation. And then at that point, I kind of sat back and I went, and it's funny because American Idol had just started and I'm looking at this guy, this Ryan Seacrest guy and I'm like, crap, I'm like him, I could do what he's doing. I go, gosh, this is a moment where I'm going to look back and go, well, if I give up here, this is probably it. This is probably my shot. So I'm going to do everything I can. So I actually went and watched unlimited repeats of American Idol and I copied every single idiosyncrasy and every mannerism and every hand gesture and every way of talking that Ryan Seacrest did to the point where he held his microphone with his fingers to how he held his cards, to how he interacted on and off with guests. Ever I copied the whole thing and then created my own version of it. And that was the point where it went from being this kid that won this contest to being, oh crap, this guy's actually pretty bloody good at his job. This is the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by
0: Sporting Chance
1: Media. For three decades, Penrith and the surrounding community has turned to the Western Weekender. Whether it's the Weekender's highly revered print edition or its up-to-date news offerings through its digital presence, the Weekender truly is the heartbeat of Penrith. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. The,
0: The growth of you... As a host, was that reflected in more opportunities, more recognition that came your way?
1: Yeah, blew up. Like, so the hardest thing when you're on camera as a actor or a host is getting a break. And if you get it young and you're hungry, well, you're in the absolute box seat because you've got unlimited opportunity. Most, most of the time. People go through drama school. They do some really amateur stuff with friends and it's this 10 year grind before they get their moment. And at that point they're like 30, but I'm 21 and I got my own TV show and I'm starting to really grab it by the balls. So it just exploded. I ended up doing unlimited things. Like I went overseas and hosted all the big award shows over there for MTV. I interviewed Beyonce, like interviewed everyone in the world for MTV and then I thought to myself, okay, so what's the next thing I want to go after? And to me, it was either I go to the US because it's the biggest stage or I take on a show in Australia. And and at that point at 24, I was like, well, the only show I want to do is getaway because I want to travel. And if I go to America and get a big job, I'm not going to have that opportunity to travel again. So this is my moment to sort of, you know, see the world. And so I actually went to an agent and I didn't have an agent at that point. I went to an agent in Sydney and I said, look, I want to get on getaway. And they go, yeah, it's never going to happen. They don't hire anyone. They hire like once every five years. I go, okay, well look, I'll make a tape and give it to you. And if you can get me on getaway, you can sign me. If not, don't worry about it. And they're like, okay. So at the time I was hosting a series on the world surfing tour with MTV and billabong. And so we were in Tahiti. So I basically created a segment for that show, which was a getaway segment and just produced it with the, with the producer. And it, you know, it went to air for an MTV show, but it, it looked like a getaway show. So I gave that to the uh, agent. She sent it in. She's like, Holy crap. They want to see you next week. <laughs> I was like, no way. So I end up going in and uh, I'm sitting in this meeting and I've got, you know, ripped up jeans and wearing like fuchsia pink Haviana thongs and uh, like a, some kind of ripped t-shirt with some surfy haircut on this is like MTV punk. And I'm sitting on the, at MTV, the old, MT, uh, sorry, the old channel Nine offices on level three. It's like pretty bougie. It's where all the executives are And I'm on this level going, what the hell am I doing up here? I'm 23 years old and Eddie McGuire comes in and I'm like, oh, cause it's so famous, you know, back then I'm like, oh my gosh, He comes in the room. and He's like, Hey mate, I go, hi. And he's like, so you want the job? I go, uh, at this point, I haven't spoken to anyone. And I'm like, uh, sure. And he goes, okay, only one question. Who do you barrack for? And I go, what? And he's like, who do you barrack for? And I I, like, to be honest, I'm so un-Australian. Like my dad is a cricket statistician. He's written hundreds of books on cricket and all this stuff. So I like cricket. I actually don't like football that much. (laughs) I go, oh man, I don't know. I don't really like that much football, but I guess the Sydney Swans. (laughs) And I had no idea. He's like some big guy in some huge Melbourne team. And he goes, oh, that's bloody no good. I'll have to change that. But you start on Monday, okay? Don't F it up. I go, okay. And then he walks out of the room and that was it. And my agent's looking at me just white going, I think he got the job. I'm like, oh my gosh. So then that afternoon they send me the first assignment or whatever and they're like you're going up to Byron Bay to film a surfing trip, bring some of your mates. I'm like, oh my God. And my world just changed. And that sort of started a an eight year journey where I was pretty much I actually think it was about five years I was full time. And you know, we went to a hundred plus countries and all business class and did everything you could ever imagine from, you know, the Rio carnival in Brazil to the pyramids, to hiking the Chinese great wall to running with the Komodo dragons in Indonesia to hiking the Himalayas and looking at Everest, like everything you could ever imagine. I did it twice and um, I actually still work for getaway and I still produce and I still host. And it's been 16 years. It's pretty bloody good.
0: It's an incredible journey just to hear that then Jason. And at the age of 23, did you have a sense that, you've made it and I'll use inverted commas. There. Did you think that you'd hit your pinnacle at that point?
1: No, nah, because I, I kind of like saw, I saw Australia as, um, as a great sort of opportunity to develop a skill set, but my mind was always on the biggest stage in the world. And that was the U S so when I got on that show, I said to myself, okay, well I'm going to do a, I'm going to give this 100% of my energy and I'm not going to be distracted. And because I was so late into puberty, I was like, well, when I actually am fully a man, I'm going to then make the trip to the U S and try to take my moment. But to me, I had to wait till at least 28 years old. And then at that point on getaway, I've been on it, I think five years. I was like, okay, I think this is my moment to, to really take on the world's biggest stage. And that's when I sort of, I cut a deal with channel nine where they allowed me to sort of only work, I think 40 days a year, but I could live anywhere in the world. So I moved to Los Angeles and lived in Los Angeles while working 40 days a year on getaway, which allowed me to pay for my career. Oh, sorry. allowed me to pay for my life living in LA. And um, I gave myself about a year over there before, uh, before I had to find another job. And I mean, I'll throw a little tangent in the mix. This is a little disruptor in the narrative. I just saw it like at 28. (laughs) This is pretty funny actually. I thought like at 28, what, what I should do is come to the US and be a host and um, just continue on what I've been doing. But I sat back and I spoke to some of my friends and I was like, well, I actually am only 28 and I haven't enough cash in the bank to not work for a year. Maybe, uh, maybe I'll try to be a movie star. <laughs> I was like, maybe I'll just give it a crack. Like, what, what do I got to lose? So I came over here and I'd never acted and I went to New York. For eight weeks and studied full time at the best, one of the best theater schools in the world. (laughs) I just went head first into it and it was like super weird and everything you could ever imagine, like totally like Meryl Streep, Marlon Brando kind of bloody acting. And I'm like, what am I doing? And anyway, I gave it my best and then literally a week out of drama school, whatever, I, I booked a job to be in a Matthew McConaughey movie and it was like my first audition. I had two lines in it or whatever. It's called movies called fool's gold. And it, still to this day. I got 350 bucks residuals the other day from the movie. I shot 10 years ago. Anyway, so that was my first acting gig, So I get this wrong. I'm like, gosh, maybe I'm going to be a movie star. This is cool. So I went to LA and I said to myself, okay, you got 12 months, do nothing else other than your 40 days on getaway. And you're going to audition unlimited and you go to acting school. And if you can pay for, you, for your lifestyle after a year, you'll just keep acting until you run out of money and then you'll pivot back to hosting. And so during that year, I auditioned for everything you could ever imagine. Got really close to the role of Captain America. Auditioned for so many things. Had a huge agent, all sorts of stuff. Shot one movie that I didn't even get paid for. I just said, don't even pay me. It was like an indie skateboard Christian film where I played a rebel skateboarder in Venice Beach other than that, I didn't book a single role and like, I didn't even get a call back. Like I might've auditioned like 300 times and I'm like, what am I doing? So I tried everything under the sun, but it didn't work. So I had, maybe I had 5,000 bucks left. Like, I got pretty low. Maybe I had like a week left or whatever, or a month left on my channel. Deal, and I was basically tapped out. I was like, Holy crap. Like this is the moment. I'm, I've either got to go home here. or I got to do something. So I said, okay, well I gave it the year. It didn't work now pivot back to what you know and what worked for you as a host so i basically got a new agent and i said hey i told him i hadn't been acting i said i just arrived <laughs> i said oh i just arrived in la i'm oh, a host been hosting all these shows didn't tell him about the little side dream you know and uh they said oh gosh yeah you're really bloody good you've been doing all this stuff and i was like well this is a lot easier than acting <laughs> and they go yeah we'll get you some meetings and that week I went around and did like a bunch of general meetings to all the big networks in, in the U S and when I walked into VH1 and the guy within two minutes was like, mate, would you move to New York? I go, why? And he goes, Oh, we've got this daily live entertainment show. It's just like the today show, but it's on VH1 and MTV. And it's in times square in the big studio with the glass thing looking out on the street. And we need a, we need a co-host. We need a, a pop culture expert. You want to do it? I go, what? He's like, yeah, he's starting two weeks. I was like, oh my gosh. So literally to my last last dollar in the last two weeks, I get this job and I f- pack up LA and fly over to New York. And I went and, went and uh, did that for three years full time. It was uh, 5 a.m. every day I would start in Times Square and host a, an hour live pop culture show with this other American girl in the middle of Times Square. And we interviewed you know, the biggest people in the world and basically unscripted for an hour every day for you know, 500 episodes. And that's where I really cut my teeth as a host.
0: It's interesting. You referenced Matthew McConaughey earlier, as we've seen recently with his book, green lights, and he talks about looking at everything as an opportunity. And and rather than looking at things as a red light and stopping, you find a way around it and, and you create things. Is that ingrained in you, that ability to put yourself out there, to put yourself in front of executives and just to say yes. And to take an opportunity, has that always been a part of you? Do you think?
1: yeah I'm trying to think of like where that came from I don't really know I guess like my parents were like my dad is a is an entrepreneur he he had a pretty entry level sort of night shift job and then he was really passionate about cricket to the point where he would score as a hobby cricket games on score sheets and then he would uh, type it into a database and just accumulate information and data and statistics and he got to one point where he just said to my mom he's like hey I actually think I got some I, th- I think I might have the most amount of information on cricket in the world. And my mom's like, oh, holy crap. Well, what the hell are you going to do with it? And he's like, I don't know. Maybe I could sell this stuff. And so she kind of gave him that ultimate, ultimatum and said, well, look, we'll give it a year. And if, if you can give it a good crack, then maybe you can just do that. Cause he, he was obsessed with cricket. And so he, he created his little office in the back of our house. And lo and behold, he's 35 years. He had this incredible career where he provided cricket statistics to You know, Channel 9, he still does, I'm pretty sure. And all the papers through Australia, through India, Pakistan, London. You know, he wrote a bunch of cricket books. He's, uh, you know, still to this day, I think right now, he's down in Canberra scoring or ground announcing some game and just basically turned his passion into a career and was bloody good at it. I think maybe I was influenced by that, just the fact that, well, if, if you're into it, you can do it. You know what i mean and he didn't really he didn't really like say to me oh you should do this you should do that he just kind of let me do my thing but i think maybe being exposed to that meant well i can don't have to follow the status quo i can just do whatever i want
0: what was the role of the family say while you're in Times square you know you're cutting your teeth there on vh1 what's the role of your family back home is it a support role are they anxious
1: man they loved it like from day one when i got that job on mtv they just loved it like every day it was like this is cool keep going for it we got this far just rock it like never was there a moment where they were like this is weird this is stupid nah they were always like this is the coolest thing you should go hard embrace it and every time I had an opportunity I would get them involved you know so if I'm doing getaway I've flew my dad with me to the Himalayas and we hiked the Himalayas for two weeks. And he was one of the characters on the show. When I was hosting a huge award show in the US, it's called the Do Something Awards with Will Ferrell and a bunch of other people. I flew my mom out and sat her front row and she sat next to all these people and, you know, it was kind of a part of it. And then I worked on David Jones as the menswear ambassador for five years and you know, I'd be in the runway shows and host all their stuff. And I bought my sisters and my mum and dad and they'd sit front row and they'd be a part of it. And, you know, part of that obligation was I'd have to host the Corfu Cup and all the big racing carnivals during spring racing down in Melbourne. And I'd bring my family down and they'd come in the big bougie David Jones box and like eat all the fancy food, you know. So it was great. And even today that like my mum actually works for my business today she's uh she yeah she's on the front line it's bloody awesome
0: it reiterates the, the importance of that support network and and having you know, trailblazers like your dad in front of you paving the way but then also the support through the journey uh, i'm sure is is incredibly beneficial another one is uh, mark howard who's a, a journalist and a host in australia across the sporting field and he hosts his own podcast and he often talks about saying yes in the early days, just say yes to everything because you never know what's going to come. And with that, you grab every opportunity, but did you find at some point you actually started to need to say no to some things that if you kept saying yes, you would have burnt yourself out. As a,
1: as someone who's in front of the camera, again, you know, you're a producer in front of the camera. There's not many people that can say no by virtue of having too much work even big movie stars, even like Brad Pitt or whatever. I'm sure he has to say yes all the time because he doesn't have any bloody opportunities, you know? So as a host, you have to say yes all the time. When you're a producer producing content, sometimes, you know, maybe what the client wants is unrealistic and maybe it's a distraction or whatever. But as an entrepreneur, I think the biggest thing I learned early on is having narrow because whether whether I'm on camera or a producer I still look at it as entrepreneurial because so a lot of people define entrepreneur as Mark Zuckerberg you know you got to create like bloody Facebook and then you're an entrepreneur but I find an entrepreneur is somebody who's just created their own destiny and created their own career in whatever field it is whether it's a podcast or hosting a bloody TV show so as an entrepreneur the biggest thing i found was choosing a lane and not being distracted from that lane. So if you go, well, I'm going to be a a producer or a host, but somebody then goes, Oh mate, you're like really good in front of the camera. Like I've got this like bloody underwear brand. Would you maybe like want to just like do a bit of marketing and then spruik it here. And then you could just do this. Well, early on, yeah, I'll do bloody anything. But then you start to realize that, well, that actually like took me on a bit of a tangent, took me off the trajectory of what I'm trying to do as a host and took me out of it for a moment. So maybe in the future, I'll say no to that one. And I can give you a really specific example is so I was at David Jones as their men's ambassador. And that I was in, in the U S hosting the morning show on VH one. And so, so, so I get this job on, I get this job on David Jones and they hired me because they said, well, we want you to walk in these shows and bring all the energy, but we want you to host all our live stream stuff and produce you know, video content for us and interview people because you can sort of come in as the host personality and then also wear the clothes. So that was the role. During that, there was a moment because I I'd done graphic design at university. There was a moment where I was around all these clothes and around David Jones and around trends and in New York, and I said, "Well, gosh, there's a lot of people on the street wearing like cool Nikes with suits and jeans, and Kanye West is wearing Nikes with his blazer and." You know, David Beckham is wearing his like Lululemon pants around and, and it sounds trivial now, but you know, back 2014, that wasn't really happening. It was was kind of this hybrid of street culture with um, athletic wear, which is, I guess what we call now is maybe athleisure wear or whatever. It was like the birth of Lululemon. And then just being by virtue, the guy on the front line with David Jones, I looked at all their clothes. It's like, they don't really have a men's sort of like fashionable athletics brand. So I just spoke to a couple of people. I was like, maybe I was going to pitch and make my own clothing line. And they were like, how are you going to do that? And I went, I don't know. So I went home and I Googled how to make a clothing line. And there was this sort of five-step process on how to do it. So I just read it. And then every day when I was on the train going to work to host a show, I just started sketching out what I thought this idea would be. And then I found somebody who could make me some samples and I made them. And I said, well, gosh, I'm just going to call my own name. So I called it Dundas Fitness. So just Dundas Fit. And I designed a logo and put this, uh, what do you call it? Like the sample collection together. And then I went, well, how am I going to pitch it to, to David Jones? So I just went online. I Googled how to pitch clothing brand. And I just copied the deck and made it look bloody cool and came up with some pretty unique angles on why they should do it. And I just hit him up and said, hey, I got a meeting. I want to pitch you something. they're like, all right. And when I went in there, I thought, well, everybody probably gives everybody like a piece of paper or whatever. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy five iPads and I'm going to put my a uh, presentation on a beautiful website because my strength is design. That's what my background is. So I'm going to blow them out of the water with the most beautiful thing they've ever seen. I'm going to allow them to slide up and down and play videos and everything. So I went in the room, I gave it to everybody, and and I said, "Look, here's my idea, and this is why I think it's going to work." And they go, Yep, yeah, great, we'll buy it, and we'll put it in 35 stores in eight weeks." <laughs> I was like, "What? I'd never made anything in my life, clothing-wise, and I'm living in New York hosting a show." Oh my gosh. So I partnered with this bloke and um, we ended up, you know, selling like three or four collections of this stuff and it went really well to the point where it, it hit a bit of a pivotal moment, which gets me back full circle. And I went, well, and I spoke to my friend Tom about it. And I went, well, I'm not a fashion designer. I'm not going to be a fashion designer. I don't love fashion. I love media and I love videos and making content. I don't know. I think this might be a bit of a distraction. Like in 30 years, do I really want to be sitting here sketching a bloody t-shirt? No, I want to be making a a commercial with Tom Brady at the Super Bowl. So this, I'm going to have to pull the pin on this. You know, we, we sold like a good amount of stuff. So I actually pulled the pin on it, walked away. And that was like a big pivotal moment where I went, well, it's not about saying yes or no. It's just about honoring the trajectory that I'm on and giving it the best opportunity for success. This is the Passion of Perspective podcast
0: brought to you by Sporting Chance Media.
1: For three decades, Penrith and the surrounding community has turned to the Western Weekender. Whether it's the Weekender's highly revered print edition or its up-to-date news offerings through its digital presence, the Weekender truly is the heartbeat of Penrith. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday.
0: I mean, that's a great piece of advice is is that staying in the lane and yeah really honing in on, on something and, and doubling down on your strengths as well that's what's resonated yes. to me in that piece do you dwell on those big decisions throughout your career does it, does it take a lot of time to get to that point or are you pretty quick okay move on to the next thing
1: no so like the the more the the further along you get the quicker you can make them And I think now, like to me, the key to success is being, um, is being open for opportunity. So there's a difference to being, to being somebody that is, um, you know, hardworking and sort of, you know, trying to be an entrepreneur and whatever, versus somebody who is aware of opportunity and can see it and then capitalize it instantly without hesitation. So it's kind of hard to describe, but I guess like Marilyn Monroe was famous for saying that she used to do all these dancing lessons and elocution lessons and accent lessons and posture and all this stuff, not because she had to, but because she wanted to be ready when opportunity presented itself. So I guess that's kind of the way that I've launched into this uh, media business is every day I'm just grinding away, making videos or whatever the hell I'm doing in that space. So whenever I see an opportunity and um, you know, this happened recently with Foxtel. I thought, you know, there's an opportunity where I can produce a show for them from Hollywood with the biggest movie stars in the world. And within, you know, 45 seconds getting my haircut of having that thought, I emailed my contacts there and pitched them on a two liner. And now I'm into my third season. So zero hesitation, but you got to back yourself. And it doesn't happen overnight, you know, you got to, you got to really understand what your strengths are and what you can, what you can do and, and almost learn to be able to identify the opportunity is, is I think one of the greatest talents because a lot of people can do the job, but not many people can see the moment and can actually grab the moment without hesitating.
0: As we spoke about, you've been on some of the biggest shows in the world, X Factor, Getaway Entertainment Tonight. Has there been a most memorable one, one that you've really hung your hat on and said that was good fun, but I also performed to a really high standard?
1: Yeah, I felt, like, I felt like X Factor was bloody good. I felt like I really hit my stride on the X Factor. It was pretty cool. I felt like towards the end of Getaway, like I really started to just let go of everything. And the, the, the key to being a travel host is to not being a host. You just need to be a human experiencing a trip And you need to be a heightened version of a human. And Ben Dark was one of the hosts. He was the greatest example of that. Like half the time, he used to tell the camera to go get effed. Because he was like, I actually want to see this. Like get out of my face. And it was just so raw and real. Um, In the US, I hosted a show called America's Best Dance Crew, which was hosted by Mario Lopez for about six or seven seasons. And then I came in on the eighth season. And uh, that was a massive show. And it was just super cool. Uh, I felt that was pretty great. And then for Fox in the US, I hosted this pilot called Challenge Me America, which was the biggest show I've ever done and would have been the biggest budget show and it would have changed my life forever. And I signed a contract, like a five-year deal for it. You know, I'd be a completely different person today, but after the pilot, for whatever reason, it didn't get picked up. But during that moment, I think I exceeded my expectations of what I could actually do as a host because it was... It was just me on stage with contestants, challenging them to crazy stuff. There's no one else. There's no judges. There's nothing. It was just me talking for an hour. And I didn't think I could do that. But when I watch it back, I'm like, damn, bro, you did well.
0: <laughs> Nowadays, Jason, you are director and founder of Dundas media. And you said to me before our chat that if I can dream it, I can make it. What are you hoping to achieve through your work at Dundas media?
1: Yeah, so, so on X Factor, at the end of X Factor, I thought, well, gosh, I need to I need to take control of my own destiny and, and media and television shows, television commercials, branded content. This is what I want to do. So I'm going to be in front of it. I'm going to make it. I'm going to write. It. I'm going to produce. It. I'm going to edit. It. I'm going to do the whole thing. Use all my skills, pull them together and all my contacts, and I'm going to create the best videos in the world, but I'm going to make it super lean because I believe that media has turned into a volume game and it's not about making a $10 million commercial and airing of two years. It's about making $130,000 commercials. And I think I got an opportunity where I can streamline, you know, what it means to produce content at a premium level, but cost effective. So that was my business model. And I thought I'm positioned pretty well because I've been in front of the camera and I've got a Rolodex of contacts, which is, uh, you know, some of the best of the world. And I'm positioned in Los Angeles, which is the hub of entertainment and media. So I thought, well, this, this is a stack deck. I'm going to give this a good crack. And, uh, early on it's, uh, in a business, it's always about getting that one break. It's really bloody hard. And for me on the final episode of, of the X factor, uh, Robbie Williams was the guest and we're live on stage and I'm interviewing him. He's staring at me. And I'm like, what the fuck is this guy doing? <laughs> like, what's he doing? Is he going to answer my question? Like, what's going on? And, you know, you got the director in the ear, you got your producer in the other ear, and he's like yelling at you and there's people screaming. And he looks at me, he goes, mate, you've got bloody lovely teeth. And I was like, what? And he's like, mate, your teeth are so lovely. How do I get those? And I just had this clear bracer technology called Invisalign. I purchased it in the US. I had it for two years and straightened my teeth out. And I turned the camera in a whim live on TV. And I was like, Oh, thanks to Invisalign. And then just went on with the show. And at the end of the show, I was like, so I just, I, I just started in my head, decided that I was going to create this company during the X Factor. I hadn't done anything for it yet. Maybe I had a logo. That was it. And I thought, I just mentioned this brand on stage to, you know, 1.5 million Australians. I actually had the treatment and I paid for it. And it was then solidified and recognized by an international pop star. I actually think i got a pretty good shot at being the face of this brand. And not only that, I actually think I could probably produce their commercial and that could launch my business. So I went online that night. I clipped the little 10 second grab of Robbie saying it and me mentioning the brand And I went on to like Invisalign.com.au and I emailed the general inquiries line. I said, hey guys, my name's Jason. I host the X Factor. This happened last night on the show. It just randomly happened. Here's the clip. I actually paid for your treatment. It cost me a crap load of money. It wasn't cheap, but I'm really happy with the results. And I actually think I can produce you some great commercials and I can be in them. I've got this company and I make all these videos. (laughs) And they wrote back and they're like, yeah, we uh, we had the biggest spike we've ever had in traffic we had this huge moment. We were thinking about reaching out to you, but yeah, let's have a meeting. And I ended up producing them three commercials and uh, that was the launch of my business, my media business. I ended up having a two, three-year relationship with them and produced a whole lot of stuff for them. And that was the birth of the company.
0: It's another incredible moment to experience, Jason. When, when you look at your day-to-day work, what's the balance between taking your inspiration and creativity, but then balancing the brief from the client And then wanting to get Their messages across
1: So right now As a business We're operational In You know 45 countries around the world We have a network Of about 500 videographers So we can shoot In any of those countries At any time We shoot Television commercials We produce um, You know Lots of uh, Episodes of getaway uh, And stories for getaway We produce A uh, a bi-weekly entertainment show for Foxtel. So we're producing TV shows, TV commercials, and then a lot of what's called branded content for some of the biggest uh, platforms and brands in the world, like GQ, Vogue, Bon Appetit, Condé Nast Traveler, all these uh, clients. And at the end of the day, I, I think a lot of people can replicate what I do. There's no IP, you know, a lot of people can make a video that looks the same. They can use the same camera. They can write probably a better story or they can grade it better or, get a better actor or whatever they're going to do. So I just think to myself, well, what what are my strengths and what can I do here? And, and my strengths are I can use my skill set to streamline the production and cut the budget. So out of the gate, I can offer you a better product or if not a comparable product but at a cheaper price. And then I say, well, at that point how can I outwork the others? And the only way to do it is to work harder and quicker. So if a, if a brief comes through from a client, I'll just go gung ho. And get it back to them lightning quick, as good as I can, because if he's given it to four others, the best thing I can do is be the first out of the gate and be the best at it and get it back to him as quick as possible. And at the end of the day, I just see myself as a, as a problem solver for them. They need to sell a product, or advertise a brand. The medium is video and they need to do it as cost-effective and as bloody good as possible. And they need to get it done lightning quick. And so as long as I can tick all those boxes and in terms of their creative versus my creative versus the brief, at the end of the day, my job is to make the client happy and to sell their product. They know their product more than me. I'm just a specialist at making video. So I just say at the end of the day, look based on what you want, here's what I think from 20 years of experience, what's going to be great. And this is how, how much it's going to cost, but never, never, for a second, am I ever precious in any any regard? I'll change anything and I'll do anything. I'll jump through fire to make them happy with their product. And if I think it's not going to sell and it's not going to work, I'll just be honest. I'll be like, oh, look, guys, I, I just think for these reasons, it's not going to work. But obviously, I'm going to make you whatever you want because my job is to make you happy and to make your life easier.
0: Jason, it's been such an extraordinary and inspiring journey to this point. And with no doubt, plenty more to come. Would you change it? up until this point, the journey that he's
1: had? I often look back and I go, I go, are there any moments where, cause I often look in the, it's like pretty, pretty morbid, but I look in the mirror and I go, okay, cool. Okay. So today you're going to die. At what point are you like pretty disappointed and what would you do different? And I always look back when I just bring that up in my mind and I go, Oh God, okay. I would have gone harder there or I would have just been more aggressive there. But then I start to analyze those moments and I go, well, crap, I actually think I was as aggressive as I could have been. (laughs) And I think if I was any harder, people might've thought I was a psychopath. So I don't know if I could actually have gone any harder. So in hindsight, I guess, I guess the only thing I would have done is maybe not cared as much early on what people thought, but maybe that's all like a development phase. You need that to mature. And I guess they say youth is wasted on the young. So like, I guess, you know, if I had the brain I have now and the experience, but I was 23, I mean, it'd be a different game, you know?
0: And do you believe in life that we find ourselves or create ourselves? Your life has been built around so many poignant moments. Do you believe that the path is laid out for people and we just live it? Or that every decision you make every day shapes where you end up?
1: No, I mean, I'm like, I'm a dead set atheist. And I just think like, once we're gone, it's a wrap. And uh, like, I believe in, you know, well, I guess maybe agnostic is the word. I think like, I believe there's, you know, there's the idea of a higher power or whatever, but like, I don't think any, I don't believe in fate or whatever. And I don't think, I don't think you got a path or whatever. I just think, you know, we're a particular animal. We have cognitive ability. We have the ability to retain information and we're in a pr- pretty bloody blessed era where if you want to make a clothing line, you just Google it and learn and you can do whatever the hell you want. Really? So I just think, yeah, anyone has the opportunity and the tools to do whatever they want. And at the end of the day, like, you know, I'm not the best looking bloke in the world, like Brad Pitt to land on my feet in that role. And I'm not six foot six and I can't slam dunk it, but I can design a mean website and a pretty cool logo and cut a pretty epic video pretty quick, you know? So I think if you play to your strengths, then you work out well. And if you do, whatever you can do the best. If you do that the best all the time, then I think you're pretty on the right track.
0: And what does the next six months or so so have in store for you, Jason? What's the next big milestone coming your way?
1: Yeah. So there's, I guess up until this point in, in Dundas media, my media business has been going really well um, working in both markets, Australia and the U S been making a lot of branded content, uh, having great success. I think at this point, what I want to do is really take it to the next level and, and, Start to sort of capitalize on that Michael Jordan moment, and you know, I'm, right now while I'm talking to you, I've got YouTube TV on, and I'm watching the. I can see the Super Bowl on behind me. You know, I, I want to be that guy that's that's producing, directing, and making the Apple commercial for the Super Bowl. Like, I want to make those moments that make people's spines shiver and they just like drop a tear out of their eye because they see that commercial or whatever it is specifically with TV commercials, branded content. contents. So that's, you know, that's, that's one thing I want to do. I want to go to that next level. And then second of that is I want to make big TV shows. And when I say a big TV show, a format and a big format is I look at it as a startup American idol. Uh, America's got talent, the voice. These are international, you know, copyright formats that are sold to hundred territories plus And they make the, the, the owners of those formats, billionaires. And, you know, I can name like a bunch of guys like Simon Cow, Mark Burnett, you know, these people are the pioneers of the format in it's all pretty much reality competition, TV shows and reality TV shows, um, game shows, wheel of fortune. This stuff is like big, big sort of format TV. So I guess for me over the next six months was your question is I want to hone in and start producing and pitching, uh, one or two big formats every other month to give myself a good crack. And on a 10 year plan, I only really need to hit one of them. <laughs> so if I can pitch 2000 in 10 years, I think I can hit one. And then I really want to start to to elevate the body of work and really crack some ultra high level commercials and, you know, really out of the box stuff. And then I think that's kind of, uh, kind of where I want to head next.
0: What's the best way for people to check out your work?
1: Oh, yeah. You can just go on Dundas, which is D-U-N-D-A-S, dundasmedia.com.
0: Jason, thank you so much for an inspiring and insightful conversation. Wishing you all the best.
1: Yeah, mate. No worries. Good times. And, uh, enjoy Penrith. Thanks for listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media and proudly presented by the Western Weekender.
0: For more unique and inspiring stories from the Blue Mountains and Penrith region, check out other episodes of the Passion and Perspective podcast. You can also listen to the latest series from Sporting Chance Media, Adventure Shorts, where we chat with local guests from the world of the great outdoors and hear some of their most memorable adventures. Search for Adventure Shorts on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast.